Hi, this is Elizabeth Ficken, and I've been leading women's Bible study discussion groups at my church for more than 20 years. I recruit and train and do my best to encourage women to be leaders who accurately handle the Word of God. Hi, ladies. Thank you for being leaders in your Bible study groups. Get your green highlighter and green pen so that you can underline some important statements and make notes to help you lead ladies in a meaningful discussion of God's Word. Let's delight in studying and sharing the precious words of the Lord to us. This is the Leader's Guide for Letters to the Thessalonians, a study on 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And I will be going over lesson one and two in this session. So turn to page 13, leaders, and I will be giving you hints. I hope that you have what I like to use, a green highlighter and a green pen to make additional notes so that you will be prepared to lead your ladies through a discussion. And I'm going to start with um, mentioning something about the title. You could say, let's talk about something special. And then in the first line, I would just say, you have received priority mail. And then I have an arrow drawn down to to the last sentence of the second paragraph. These personal letters of the Apostle Paul were inspired by the Holy Spirit and are completely authoritative and communicate God's truth without error. It is always good to be reminded that God's word is his letter to us, and it is without error, and it is inspired, God-breathed by the Holy Spirit. So turn turn to the next page, and just on page 14 and 15, you have Um, a visual of what a letter on papyrus might have looked like if it were written in English. But I am bringing your attention to these two pages. Ask the ladies um, this question. You were not asked to highlight anything, but did you highlight anything um, as you read through these letters? Or is there anything that you would like to share just in reaction to this visual aid of letters to the Thessalonians. When Paul wrote them, again, he used a scribe. He did not have chapter headings or chapter one, two, three. He did not have verse numbers in there. The people just read it and heard it directly from Paul. So um, again, this was just a visual aid. So did they highlight anything? Did they have any response to this two pages? If not, that's fine. There was no question, no requirement of that. We're just going to give an opportunity in case anybody wants to say anything about it. And now we'll go to page 16 where it is time for um, questions and answers after having looked through the things in our Bibles. Let's answer these questions which introduce us to these letters. From 1 Thessalonians, the first question you were asked was, who is this letter from and to whom is it addressed? It is from Paul and Silvanus or Silas. That's the same name. One is just a Greek version or variation of his name. And Timothy. So three of them are together writing back to 
To whom? The church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the main thing we're really seeing is that Paul identifies this is to the church. But we could stop here, and I can't help myself now, because we're not the church unless we are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the one who makes the difference and makes us what we are, and he makes us be a part of the church. And they didn't have to say that, but I had to say it. In the next set of questions, according to 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 10, how are the following described? So we're going to take each of these. And depending on how you and your group are structured to go through these lessons, if you're only doing one lesson a week, um, then you're not going to want to rush through this. Our groups usually do uh, one or two. Our, us our groups usually do two lessons per week. But um, even now we have some ladies who are only doing one lesson. So I'm just saying take your time. Uh, don't rush through this lesson. Okay, back to the question. How are the following described? How are Paul and his mission team described? Well, they are thanking God for the Thessalonians. They are remembering the Thessalonians constantly in prayer. And it says that they gave the gospel to them. Those are the things that I wrote. There may be some more things that other ladies have drawn out from Paul and his mission team. You could say, again, it's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Um, but they could say that they were thankful, and they were prayerful, and they were evangelistic. Um, they could say they were involved in people's lives. So there are different, I hope, that everyone is looking at the words of Scripture and their answers are derived from the words of Scripture. Same thing was what we're going to see in the Thessalonian believers. How were they described in these first verses of 1 Thessalonians? Uh, they had works of faith, labor of love, endurance of hope, they were called brothers, loved by God. Being called brothers, that is huge. Uh, that shows that we're the family of God. Paul says they became imitators of Paul and of the Lord. Imitators. That's a beautiful thing to be um, called that. That's a very good thing. What else? These Thessalonian believers experienced severe persecution. They also welcomed the message, and we're going to see in a later lesson that this word message is also referring to the gospel. It is referring to the message of faith. It's referring to the doctrine that Paul taught. So they welcomed what Paul had to say. They welcomed the message. The Thessalonian believers were an example to all believers in the territory because of how they responded and then how they behaved and lived out their faith. Um, it's, that's in the next phrase I have written in my workbook. The message of the Lord rang out everywhere through them. So they heard it and then they shared it. And what was going on in their lives? They turned from idols to serve God and to wait for Jesus. 
All of these things are just loaded to me because we're going to talk about them more and it makes me eager to talk about it right now, but we're going to stay with the the overview, this description of what Paul said about them. Um, oh, I keep looking at 1 Thessalonians and I'm thinking, how much did I ask y'all to read? And we're just looking at verses 2 through 10 for these descriptions. Okay, how was God described? He's called Father, and it says that he loves the Thessalonians, brothers beloved by God, and he's also called the living and true God. Um, How is Jesus described? He's described as the Lord, Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. He was raised from the dead. He rescues us from the coming wrath, and he will come from heaven. I um, have seen, and we will talk about this, that Paul shared with the Jews at the synagogue in Thessalonians, Thessalonica. And then Jews became um, believers in Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. So for Paul to say and refer to Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ, These Jewish people are hearing a very specific reminder. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. And there is language here that is really triggering um, belief of what the Jews have of who God is and who they've been looking for. He's the living and true God. And he promised that he would give sin, the Messiah. And Jesus is the one. He's the Messiah. All right, what does 1 Thessalonians 2 through 10 tell us about the Holy Spirit? He gives the gospel message and he gives joy in that message joy of salvation, joy as a response. Once you have salvation, you have joy. So that's, he's very active and absolutely critical regarding the gospel and regarding our salvation. That's my addition. I'm not looking for the ladies to say that. But um, The next one is the gospel. So what did you learn about the gospel? How is it described in 1 Thessalonians 2 through 10? The gospel came to the Thessalonians, not in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, in assurance. It was welcomed by the Thessalonians. And then the gospel message rang out. And we're going to have another um, lesson where we look very closely at details about the gospel. Now we're going to move on. You looked at the beginning of the Thessalonian story found in Acts 17, 1 through 10. I'm just going to say that I highlight with my green highlighter the, the statement that I just read. And I highlight the questions. Where did Paul go? How long was he there? What did he explain? I need to see that jump off the page because otherwise it just looks like a lot of black and white to me. So I'm using my highlighter to help me know what it is that is supposed to come out of my mouth during the discussion group. So where did Paul go according to Acts 17, 1 through 10? He went to the synagogue. That's the simple answer. They might say that he went from Amphipolis and from Apollonia to Thessalonica. 
And if they say that, that is fine because that's talking about his um, travel itinerary that brought him to Thessalonica. But the specific place that he went in Thessalonica was to the synagogue. How long was he there? How long was he at the synagogue? Three Sabbath days. So three Saturdays in a row. He attended these three weeks of worship. And what did he explain? He showed that the Messiah, the Christ, had to suffer and rise from the dead. And he also explained that Jesus is this Messiah. He is the Messiah, the Christ. The Bible translation that I like to use um, doesn't always say Christ. It often says Messiah because Christ is is the anointed one. The anointed one is Mashiach. So our word Messiah is that. And it just helps me really trigger the fullness of Jesus coming as the one the Jews were waiting for when I hear him described and referred to with the title Messiah. I know. And Jesus Christ, Christ is a precious title. And that may trigger everything full and wonderful for you as you use that word. Um, it's, it's just better for me personally um, in my relationship to him to, to be reminded that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, uh, lots of side notes from me as I lead these leaders' discussions. I hope they're helpful or just interesting. <laughs> So I'm still on page 16. What was the positive result according to verse 4? Acts 17 verse 4. What was the positive result of what Paul did at the synagogue? Some at the synagogue were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas in believing. And then the people that joined Paul and Silas were described. This included a great number of God-fearing Greeks as well as a number of the leading women. So at the synagogue, you've got Jews. And then there were a great number of God-fearing Greeks. I think that is probably a really big number. I don't know how, how big it is, but uh, the word great is, is a big deal. And then a number of the leading women. What was the negative reaction to Paul's message, according to Acts 17? Five through nine. Unbelieving Jews became jealous. They brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace. I'm wondering what your translations might have said, but scoundrels is a very colorful descriptive word. These scoundrels from the marketplace started a riot. They attacked Jason's house. I guess that that um, that when Acts was written, everybody knew who Jason was. He was must have been famous for. Uh, what he went through. Uh, he was dragged before the officials, and um, Jason was dragged before the officials. And then uh, these officials demanded like bond money for Jason and the others who had been brought before them, and then they were released. So Jason is a hero in this story because of what he endured. Uh, Jason's house was attacked because they were looking for Paul. Paul was not there. They had, the, the believers had, I guess, hidden him away or knew that the officials were coming and they protected him. 
So what happened to Paul and Silas according to verse 10? At night, the brothers, these believers in Thessalonica, secretly and quickly, because they did it at night, they sent Paul and Silas and Timothy away to Berea. He said, you've got to go. We don't want you to go, but it is for your safety. And uh, God uses everything. So Paul continued and shared and started preaching in Berea. Let's go to the question at the top of page 17. And here, we want to hear ladies' summaries. We don't want just one person to answer this question. So just let them know, hey, we're going to open this up. We want, well, we always want group discussion, but let's hear more than one person's summary of your description of the Thessalonian church at the time of Paul's departure. And this is based on what we've looked at in Acts and then 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10. So what did I say? The Thessalonian church was strong. Um, they were bold. They were obvious. People knew that their lives had been changed and that they had a message and they wanted others to know this message. Uh, I say obvious because they had this a reputation. They had changed lives. They had a changed lifestyle, which impacted the community. And then we also see that they cared for Paul. They were smart and hid him from the scoundrels, from the riot. Um, some of them who were not hidden away, Jason, for example, we see him as a member and he wasn't by himself. There were others with Jason. Um, they were courageous. They endured hostility. Um, they were dragged away and there's no mention of them fighting back. There are no comments recorded from Jason. So, um, wow, this is a group of people that are strong and courageous and um, that's a group of people that we are going to be blessed to know when we meet them in heaven. What else can you learn about the Thessalonians based on the following verses? Some of this is simple, um, just a simple answer. 1 Thessalonians 2.8, oh, I have begun each sentence with they because sometimes the way a Bible verse is put is a description, but if you just read it, it doesn't sound like a sentence or it doesn't sound like it's answering the question. So what can you learn about the Thessalonians based on the following verses? You may find it helpful to repeat some of what the ladies say just to kind of settle it in their mind with the they. For example, they became dear to Paul, Silas, and Timothy. But don't repeat, ladies, if just to repeat them. Um, you may not need to say anything if they've answered the question. It's very clear. First um, Thessalonians 2, 13-14. They, the believers in Thessalonica, received the message of the gospel as truly the message of God. They became imitators of churches in Judea, which also suffered persecution. I just think that that would have been very encouraging and comforting to the Thessalonians to hear that, like, look, you, you have, you've imitated other believers who have also endured hostility. They would know they are not alone. 
First Thessalonians 2.19. Um, they, the Thessalonians, are Paul's hope and joy and crown in which to boast. They are the glory and joy of Paul. First Thessalonians 3, 2 through 6. You should practice saying Thessalonians outside, out loud. <laughs> or outside, <laughs> but out loud. Um, the Thessalonians experienced persecution. And Paul was worried that they would be shaken in their faith because of these persecutions. But he also saw that they, they weren't shaken. That's what their reputation told him. But he still is writing to encourage them, making sure, you know, don't be shaken because of these persecutions. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5, this one is probably the one that's a little bit harder to get the takeaway of how the Thessalonians are described. They endured and had faith during all the persecutions and afflictions that they did experience. They suffered for the sake of God's kingdom. Okay, I encourage you to read the first sentence just as it is, and then we're going to skip down to the second paragraph and read that sentence. So highlight, after a short time with Paul, a group of Jews and God-fearing Greeks and influential women had their lives changed forever. We saw that. That's based on Acts 17.4, um, that question on page 16. When Paul wrote to them, they were new believers. They were living faithfully in the midst of a hostile environment. And then you had a, a review question and a personal application question. Please look over the description of the Thessalonians in the previous questions. What impact does their testimony have on you? How can you follow their example? So this is a question we want to open up to the group. Let's talk about this with the group. And this is, this is very encouraging to me, uh, their testimony. And... I see that they were courageous, bold. They were faithful. They were hopeful. There was also a lot of emphasis that they were waiting for Jesus. So how can I follow their example? Um, keep waiting for Jesus and know that the suffering right now is temporary. That... Um, we also can see from their lives and all that Paul teaches, Paul's life suffering as well, that God's truth, his salvation, his plans are worth suffering for. One other thing that I have noted is that the church in Thessalonica had full acceptance and application of the gospel. These people allowed the gospel, they allowed Jesus and the Holy Spirit to change their lives. They were different. They acted differently. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Everybody around them knew something was different, which is why they were persecuted, because it was impacting the community in a way that the community didn't like it. If you are discussing just one lesson, then I encourage you now to turn back to page 13 and ask a question that I asked in the introduction. It's in the third paragraph, and it's the last question. Um, why 
Did God, or why do you think God chose this particular time in your life to bring these letters to your attention? Is there anything that has already stood out to you that has been encouraging, motivating, challenging, but just uh, these letters, these these special priority mail letters have been brought to you and you're giving attention to them. Uh, do you have any thoughts yet on why God has brought your attention to them now? And then um, if you are discussing two lessons this week, as you're listening to this leader's guide, we're going to go to lesson number two on page 18. And I will use the title as an introduction by saying, we know from our study in lesson one that the Thessalonians had a good reputation. So I've written that down. I've highlighted it. And now I'm looking at the last line of the first paragraph. Now we will look at three special characteristics that defined the reputation of this church. As Paul thanked the Lord and prayed for the Thessalonians, according to 1 Thessalonians 1.3, he constantly remembered their what? You could pause and somebody will probably say work of faith. Someone else will probably say labor of love. And someone else will say whatever their translation said. Mine um, said endurance of hope, but another translation might say patience of hope. Another translation might say steadfastness of hope. So we'll let the group answer those three questions. And we're going to look at basically faith, hope, and love, but works of faith, labors of love, and endurance of hope. We'll first look at them through our Greek word studies. Let's speak some Greek. The um, So what did you find for the Greek word for work? What's the Greek word? Ergon. The Greek definition, a deed, an action, a manifestation, a practical proof. I like that. Um, I also have a note that this is active Anything done or to be done, Act, it's active. That's a key aspect to this word. What about faith? What's the Greek word for faith? Pistis. And the definition is belief directed toward a person or thing. Um, verse, I'm sorry, page 19, top of page 19. Labor, the Greek word I have as kapos. The definition, strictly, meaning in its most um, basic sense, would be beating. So you get the idea that that's a hard and painful thing. But this word, kapas, is used to describe an exhausting physical or mental exertion, toil, labor, work. And then it's exhausting and wearisome. There can be difficulties in it. Uh, it can also be a, a trouble, a burden, a hardship. So it's rough, right? This is, it's hard work. It's exhausting. It's wearying. And then the Greek word for love in this verse in Thessalonians is agape. 
the definition of love. This was interesting, and I kind of just needed to think about it a little bit. Attitude of appreciation resulting from conscious evaluation and choice. Now, the second half of that definition I really get because it's like making a decision, making a choice, a conscious evaluation and choice. That's the first part, attitude of appreciation. Well, value, not just to say thank you, I appreciate that, but that you value someone. And ultimately, all of this leads to doing what is best for the other person. So that's a key aspect to the meaning of agape. It is unselfish and it is unconditional. It is a choice. It is love with action. So those are some things that um, we want to learn from the word agape. Steadfastness is the Greek word hupomone. The definition is a basic attitude or frame of mind of patience. Steadfast adherence to a course of action in spite of difficulties. Um, adherence in spite of difficulties. That's good. And then hope, the Greek word is elpis. And the definition I have is very simply an expected and awaited good. Ladies may have other resources that they are using to add into the definition and um, as you're talking about them. So I, I hope that they are on target. If there's something that sounds like it's really off target, then make sure that they've looked up the right Greek word number. Um, are they using the right kind of resource? Um, so just uh, not looking for people to have to do major uh, research papers on these Greek words. Now let's discuss the next question. How do Matthew 7, 17 through 20 and James 2, 14 through 17 correspond to the idea of the Thessalonians' work of faith? So we're focusing on work and faith, works of faith. What is the expected appropriate behavior of a person who has believed the gospel of Christ? Matthew 7, 17-20 tells us that faith is going to be like a good tree that bears good fruit. And that means it's going to be seen and it's going to be good for other people. Something good is going to happen. And then if the bad tree bears bad fruit. But the good tree bears good fruit. There will be something. And then James tells us that faith that does not show good works is dead. And that means the opposite is true, that real faith does show good works. That's the main idea that we are getting from both of those passages. And um, that's what we're looking at with these two Greek words, work is a deed and action that is from the belief that you have towards someone. So you could even like, as you answer that question, Matthew, about Matthew and James, you can look back at the bottom of page 18 and just make sure you're putting those two things together. Deeds and belief. Now, um, on the bottom of page 19, 
there's a paragraph and a question and these two things really go together so I think it would be a good idea <laughs> to read my statement in the paragraph and then go right into asking the question. Um, a few of my commentaries state that there is no significant difference between work and labor and that the distinction is more rhetorical than substantial. But in the context of 1 Thessalonians and considering the definitions above of work and faith and labor and love, um, do you think that, well, what do you think, is loving God and loving your neighbor with unconditional, unselfish, agape love easy? Is loving easy? Well, how did Paul describe the Thessalonians' love? They said He said, your labor of love. So, first of all, we have the work of faith. Ergon is active. It's doing something. So there's exertion. Kapos is labor. And we saw that that is exhausting. It's wearying and difficult. So my takeaway on this is that agape love, acting in your faith and loving as we are to love, can be emotionally and physically and prayerfully and doing that patiently, all of that can be a hard thing. It can make you tired. It is not always easy to love with agape love. There is a labor of love that will exhaust us. And some of that might be described on page 20. So we're talking about love, how we are to love with agape love, how do these different verses describe that? Um, if you want to, if you feel comfortable, if you think your group needs it, you could go around a circle because these are pretty much where you can read what the verse says, but you don't have to do that. Um, I mean, if your group's been hesitant and slow to answer, then maybe you should go around the circle and just kind of, that'll get people ready to know it's their turn and they're going to say something so what does Matthew 22 36 through 40 tells us how how are we to love love the Lord with all your heart soul and mind and love your neighbor as you love yourself well that is pretty full and that can be very active and um, it could be a labor um, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, love is patient. Do you know sometimes it's really hard work to be patient? <laughs> love is kind. Love is not envious. It does not boast. I was looking at the NIV for this, just FYI. Love is not proud. It's not prideful. Love is not rude. I think it would be very interesting to, um, after they answer this question, you could go back and highlight that one, say, look, it's not rude. What is rude? What is something rude? And how can we show love by not being rude? Um, love is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. Love rejoices in the truth. Love always protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. Love not delighting in evil. I think we need a lot of that in our own lives and to be a witness to those around us because there are a lot of people who delight 
in evil and they delight in something bad happening to somebody else. And love doesn't do that. Romans 5, 5. How does this verse tell us to love? It says, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So, this is big. How are we to love? Well, we love with the love of God. God has put out his love into our heart. So he loves us, but we love others with God's love because of how he loved us. But how do we do that? By the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. So we are dependent on the Holy Spirit to love with the love of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. What about Galatians 5.22? How does this tell us to love? The fruit of the Spirit. It's still from the Holy Spirit. We're not conjuring this up. We are not gritting our teeth, but we are surrendering ourselves to the control and the power. And the, the <laughs> it can be shocking when you see the Holy Spirit do this stuff through your life because you might be thinking, I don't want to. I don't want to love this person. But Okay, God, just do it by your Holy Spirit. Okay. And what's that going to look like? Love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the love can all look like everything else. All of it is going to come across as agape love. Ephesians 4, 1 and 2 tells us how to love. Paul said to the Ephesians, be humble and gentle, patient, bear with one another in love. Love is humble. And he also said to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and so dearly love others. Uh, live a life of love as Christ loved us. Be imitators. These are really huge um, supernatural things to have in our lives. Again, only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit working on us and in us and through us. How are we to love according to Hebrews 6.10? Show love to God by helping his people. So the church, loving the church, helping the people of God. That's showing love. Well, we are talking about in this lesson, the good reputation of the Thessalonians. They had acts of faith. Um, a work of faith. They had labor of love. And we're getting a segue now into this next section. They had endurance of hope. The Thessalonians waited with hope for the return of Christ. Ask someone to read the box at the bottom of page 20. From Paul's perspective, it was their firmly fixed hope in Jesus Christ that gave them the strength to persevere in their new Christian beliefs and behavior in spite of considerable adversity from their non-Christian fellow citizens. So we're going to talk about hope and what the Thessalonians were 
hoping for on page 21. Hoping for the return of Christ was a major theme in the Thessalonians' lives and in both letters to them. We're going to study this topic thoroughly, but for now, what occurs at rapture and Christ's return according to the verses below? Now, it sounds like I might be muddling and merging two different events as if they are the same, but rapture is one event and Christ's return to earth is a different event. So there are, um, it's, it gets a little bit muddy in some of these verses and some of these answers because like 1 Thessalonians 1.10, what's going to happen? Well, Jesus is coming from heaven and he delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, that's, that's rapture because it's, that's rapture for us. <laughs> but if someone is a Christian during the tribulation, when Jesus returns from heaven to earth, then he will deliver that person from uh, eternal wrath. But there's a wrath to come. So I'm going to go back to 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Jesus is coming from heaven, and he delivers us, believers, from the wrath to come, the wrath during the tribulation. So this 1 Thessalonians 1.10 is talking about rapture. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Jesus comes and we have joy and a crown of rejoicing in the others' lives that those we have seen receive the gospel. Paul is looking towards rapture there. 1 Thessalonians 3.11-13, Jesus comes with all his saints and we will be blameless in holiness at his coming. Well, that first part, when, when Jesus comes with all his saints, I think that I'm thinking that comes at the end of the tribulation, but I'm not trying to get you bogged down in this right now. I'm just thinking some people may be very curious, like, what are we talking about here? So the best thing is going to say, we're going to really nail this down when we get into chapter four, <laughs> the difference, the differences, or as we keep going through the lesson. The main point of these verses right now is that they are saying Jesus is coming back. And that is true. Whether you believe in rapture or not, Jesus is coming back. That is true. And if we believe in rapture and, and, it's, and we've got it wrong, Jesus is coming back. That is true. And we just, those, if, if I'm wrong about rapture, um, then we're going to have some hard, hard times to go through. Um, and I hope that um, we're not wrong that there's a rapture because I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> so 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 18. Uh, this one is the set of rapture verses. And the word rapture is not in these verses. And we're really going to explain all this when we get to 1 Thessalonians 4. But these verses say, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. And verse 16, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an angel, with the trumpet sound. Those who are dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Caught up together. That's where the idea of rapture comes from. Caught up. And uh, meet the Lord in the air. So this is not describing Jesus coming all the way to put his feet on the earth at that time. He just comes into the comes to the clouds through the clouds for us. 
What does 1 Thessalonians 5.23 say? God will sanctify us completely. Spirit, soul, and body will be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of our Lord Jesus. I'm looking forward to digging into all these more. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 8. When Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he will repay those who afflicted the believers. I'm pretty sure that is at the end of the tribulation when Jesus comes to earth because that's when he is coming to take vengeance on those who are against him. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, it's what it says. He will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God. So that doesn't happen at rapture. That happens when he returns to earth. The Thessalonians had their eyes on the skies. Now we have an application question. In what ways are works of faith, labors of love, and steadfast hope demonstrated in your life? Try to give one example of each. So this is a question to talk about with the group. We want to encourage everybody to try to share something and you're not boasting or being prideful if you share something. And the sharing of answers is to encourage and inspire each other. Like, oh, that that's great. That's so good. Thank you for doing that. And I want to do that too. Um, so a work of faith. Well, it is a work of faith to write Bible studies. Um, it's, it is a, um, a walk of faith and a work of faith. I also think that praying is a work of faith. So think about that. What about a labor of love? Sometimes the physical serving is the labor of love. Maybe praying is the labor of love. Maybe uh, listening to someone is a labor of love. Being patient could be a labor of love. And what is an example of steadfast hope? When you keep holding on to Jesus, waiting for him, watching for him, hoping in him, even during suffering, during the trials when it is so painful and you just want everything to just be better, um, this is a momentary affliction. Our life here is short compared to eternity. Um, I would love to hear different answers because we're all gifted in different ways. We have different skills and burdens and God works through us. And it's a beautiful thing to hear how the body of Christ does, how individuals live out their faith and their love and their hope. So share that and then um, cheer for each other. Keep up the good work. That's what Paul is doing. It's like, oh, that you're doing so great. Keep it up and, and keep on and do more. And, and just looking around, we know that we all need to be letting our lights shine more and more. There's somebody around out there who needs to receive some of the labors of love that we can give for, to them. Well, I hope that that's been helpful and an interesting discussion will come about. And I thank you for being a leader to those who are studying the Bible with us. That's all.